From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the Managing Editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I talk to Dr Erica McAllister. Erica is Senior Curator of Flies at the Natural History Museum and Honorary Fellow at the Royal Entomological Society. She's also the author of the books The Secret Life of Flies and The Inside Out of Flies, which are both available now. In this episode, she tells us all about flies and why we should learn to appreciate them just a little more. Hi, my name's uh, Dr. Erica McAllister and I'm a senior curator of flies and fleas at the Natural History Museum in London. Now, flies are a super diverse group of insects. So what exactly is a fly and how is it defined scientifically? Oh, so I'm going to tell you what a fly is and I'm going to tell you every time that a fly lies to you because they're, um, they've taken the, what is the blueprint of their design and they've run with it. So they're incredibly morphologically diverse. So when we first say what is a fly, a true fly, they're in the order Diptera, Diptera, which is two wings. So straight off, that is one of the diagnostic features of a fly. The adults have one pair of wings, these two wings. And whereas most of the other um, insects uh, will have two pairs, so beetles have two pairs, bees, wasps and ants, two pairs of wings when they have them, etc. This second pair in flies has been modified into what we call a halter. And this halter is this balancing organ. I mean, it, is, it basically enables them to be the best aeronautical engineers out. They, they, you know, they can land upside down, they can fly around the planet, they're amazing because it's balancing organ. And the third thing is suctorial mouthparts as an adult. So you actually can't be bitten by a fly. So you can be sliced and maimed and pierced, but you can't be bitten. So they have this suctorial mouthparts. But this is obviously, we're just talking about the adult stage here. But there's a lot of flies that don't have wings. There's a lot of flies that don't have any basic mouth parts. And there's a lot of flies that don't have wings or halters. So you're like, oh, thanks, fly. So all those things I told you, there's always an exception to the rule. So you've got all this diversity in flies, but how many species are there? Described, there's about 165,000. But um, we're in the group called Dark Taxa, which is just the best, best title, isn't it? And so us and Hymenoptera, the bees, wasps and ants, we are probably massively underdescribed in comparison to our true diversity. So the beetles are about 350,000 described species, but we know that the flies and the Hymenoptera are probably going to be more than that when we get round to it. We've just got some quite tricky stuff to deal with. Loads of small, tiny black flies. Well, I was going to say that any flies are still waiting to be discovered, but I guess if you've not got your way through all the ones you already found to describe them. Yeah, no, um, there was a shocking paper that came out, and we think it is a bit of a like, oof, uh, that described one family of fly based on morphomolecular analysis and predictions that that one family had 1.8 million species in it. <gasps> Yes. <laughs> so at that point we went, oh, no. <laughs> so we, we know there's quite a bit to go, yes. Okay, we're getting down to maybe the simpler questions. What is the biggest species of fly out there? So the biggest species of fly is called, it's Goromidas. So it's a, um, it's a type of pentathalmid, which we don't get in the UK. They're called timber flies. 
And these can be like seven or eight centimetres long. Yeah, I mean, I, I was looking at a bat yesterday in the collection and it was a bumblebee bat. So it was, it's smaller. This bat was smaller than my fly. So I was like, wow, that's not bad. That's a chunky fly, isn't it? I mean, they, they look like uh, what you would think of a horse fly. So they look like they're huge and scary, but the adults don't even feed. So, and the larvae take like five years to develop. So they, they just look really hardcore and they're, they're just wimps. <laughs> so just get all their nutrition while they're um, in the larval form and then so don't need to feed at all as adults. Yeah, I and mean, this is what most of it is. It's alternation of generations. The larval stage is the feeding stage. So this is really important when it comes to nutrient recycling and all these wonderful ecosystem services that a lot of flies do. So, I mean, it's an ideal life cycle because you spend most of it just eating. It's brilliant. And then you have the adult stage for reproduction and dispersal. Great. And so at the other end of the spectrum then, what's the smallest fly species? So um, it's in the group of uh, flies called forids. This is a family of foridae. And these these flies do absolutely everything. But there's a guy, Brian Brown, in America, who's just fabulous at describing these. And there's one that's been described at 0.4 millimetres. Ooh, yeah. it's really tiny. No, it's, 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 it's tiny. There's one that's not the tiniest, but it's very, very small, that's been described amusingly after Arnold Schwarzenegger. And uh, so look up the Schwarzenegger fly and it's just minute, uh, but it's got really chunky limbs. <laughs> so they've named it after him, which I think is quite sweet. I mean, that's really tiny, isn't it? You think here in the UK we've got fruit flies and they're pretty tiny, but if that fly's 0.4 millimetres, that's going to be, what, like half the size of a fruit fly? If you're talking Drosophila, fruit flies are about three millimetres. They're massive. Come on, I mean, they're huge in comparison. So what is the commonest fly species in the UK? Uh, see, I don't know. Now, I, I, I was thinking about this. Now, we've got about 7,000 species of fly in the UK, which is incredible. If you think there's more species of fly in the UK than the mammals described on the planet. Okay, just to put our fauna into perspective. And within those, you've got some very species-rich groups. And they would be things like... Uh, crane flies and hover flies and things like that. But when it comes to abundance, you probably are looking at something like the midges because uh, you're going to get massive mating swarms coming up. And so those will be in, in thousands. But also every year we have like billions of hover flies that land at our doorsteps each spring. And, and there's another fly, an anthemyid, that... Again, millions of them migrate across the UK. So, I mean, there's just millions and millions of flies out there. I, I think I did an estimate once that for every human being, there's 17 million flies. Oh, my gosh. But we need That's them. That's a lot of flies. We, we need do them. need them. Yes. We need them. <laughs> yes, I was going to ask about that because how important are these pollinators? I think bees get all the spotlight, don't they? But are we forgetting about the flies? Of course we are. Uh, I know. Bees seem to have better press than flies. And um, I, I don't know whether it's because of their big eyes and their cute faces. But when it comes to pollination, um, flies are incredibly important. Just mentioning those hover flies. The fact that we have these four million turn up each year, four billion, I think it was, sorry, four billion that turn up each year. They are along the way, they're migrating across Europe. So they're, they're doing pollen transfer as well. So it's really important for uh, conservation. 
because they're doing gene transfer. They're recycling nitrogen, so they're pushing nitrogen around, and then they're coming here. And not only are the adults great pollinators, because unlike bees, they don't have to go home, you know, they don't have to give up their pollen. They just stuff themselves silly. Plus, they're very messy. So bees and bumblebees have lovely, beautiful pollen sacs, and they they put them all in. So when they move around flowers, they aren't necessarily spreading them as much. Check out, honestly, check out the faces of hoverflies. They got pollen absolutely everywhere. And a lot of them will scrape it forward and they have like pollen um, combs on their arms straight forward to eat it. But they don't have to go back home. So although they might not get as much pollen in each feeding event, just because of their activity and the numbers, they themselves are really important pollinators. And then their larvae eat a lot of the crops, uh, the pests of the crops. So they're a double whammy when it comes to it. Like baby bees do nothing, but baby flies are out there working themselves silly to help with our ecosystem services. I mean, that's just the hoverflies. So what else do flies do that's really useful for us? Oh, well, well, hold on. That's the hoverflies, the pollinators. About half the species of flies are pollinators. Okay. And this includes things like mosquitoes. So people are like, oh, no, mosquitoes are bad. No, really important pollinators. In the Arctic zone, there's about 4,000 described species of fly, uh, insect. 2,000 of those are flies. And mosquitoes, because they can survive this really quite horrible environment, really important pollinators. Uh, the midges, everyone hates. Yeah, they're the pollinators of chocolate. So if you get rid of midges, yes, you get rid of chocolate, which I find amusing. Um, so you've got all these different families doing pollination services in, in, in quite extreme environments that we don't necessarily think about. But then also they're, they're predators. So they're getting rid of a lot of things that we don't like. They are recyclers. So the whole thing about flies hanging around feces and dead bodies, it's good. It's incredibly good. Because can you imagine if they didn't? Our environment would be, well, I think rather unpleasant. I think that's the nicest way of saying it. So we, we, we need them for decomposition. We need them for pollination. We need them for all these sorts of different ecosystem functions. I do find that quite surprising when you say that they're found in the Arctic, because we generally think that you know, insects can't really hack those sort of really cold environments. But if, you know, half the insects in the Arctic then are flies, that's, that's incredible. Well, they're there. You can find them 5,000 metres up mountains. I've collected um, flies from mountains in Peru. And I can barely walk. And they're like, wee, having fun. Um, we've collected them at the base camp of the Himalayas, you know, um, um, base camp of Everest and things like that. We know they do that. But we've also collected them from the bottom of caves. We found them one kilometre down underground. We found them in, in Antarctica. They're the largest purely terrestrial animal in Antarctica because the rest, yeah, the, think about the big ones. They're both. So purely terrestrial, it's flies at three millimetres. You've got they uh, they exist everywhere, and that's you get them in the sea as well. And we don't think about insects in the sea, or most people don't. But there's actually hundreds of species of insect that's gone to the sea. When you say you can see insects at the seaside, what sort of things are we talking here? Little sandflies and things like that. <laughs> there's little sandflies, but there's little dollies, which is our affectionate name. There's family called Dolichopodidae, so they're just the dollies. They're the best of flirts. So you can see them, just the males, wing-waving all the time, going, hello, ladies, hello. And you can see the ladies ignoring them. So that's quite cute. But you get um, this family called Coronamidae, and they're non-biting midges. 
And basically, this family have just packed a passport and have gone everywhere. So these are the ones that you can find in the desert, you can find in the Antarctic, Arctic, in the sea. You know, it's like, really? And they're like, hello, we're here again. And they have an amazing physiology. They have more um, different types of globin than we do. So they can store oxygen as well as remove it around the body. So they can live in really anoxic environments. So it's great. And there's one that's called the sleeping coronamid, and it does exactly that. It can it can desiccate its body to 3% of its original weight and go to sleep for up to 13 years, they found so far. What sort of lifespans do flies have? I mean, you think of the classic mayfly, which people say only lives for about a day, but can some flies live for longer than that? Okay, so mayflies aren't flies, just to start off with. I know, it's the problem with common names. It, right, dragonflies, definitely not a fly. Horseflies, yes, annoyingly. And you can't see it, but when you write it, if it's one word, it's not a fly. And if it's two words, it is a fly. So there's that. Now, like the lifespan, we, we forget the larval stage. We always forget about the babies. I mean, we're terribly negligent. To be fair, most flies forget about their offspring as well. But um, some of them can have a very short turnover. So some of them can be a week. You know, and these are the uh, species that exist in like ephemeral habitats. So they've got to say a feces, you know, a dead body. They've got to get in there. They've got to reproduce fast. They've got to do that. Got it. That, that's how rapidly they can turn over. But as I said, some can live up to 13 years. So it really does depend on what they're feeding on and the environmental conditions. And some of them can estivate, i.e. they can what they go through a summer hibernation and some of them will go through winter hibernation. So all sorts of different life cycles and strategies depend on what they are. And you said they go through a winter hibernation. Is that where all the flies go in the winter? Because you're in the summer, all saying, oh, there's flies everywhere. And then winter comes around and they're gone. They do everything. So some of them will overwinter as adults. We generally get we. I'm not a fly. I've got to stop saying we. Um, a lot of the males die out because they're quite pointless. Um, so a lot of them, the females, was overwinter as adults. But there are a group of flies called cluster flies. And I think you can see what they do. And they all basically huddle up together and go to sleep. And then in spring, I know it's rather cute, but we always get loads of people going, oh, no, there's loads of flies just coming out. And it's like, mate, they're fine. They're going out. They eat wood lice and things like that. So they're not interested in us at all. They've just snuggled down and hunkered down for the winter. But then a lot will overwinter as eggs or a larval stage and do that. So they were just, it's, it's a good stage to be in. That's what will happen to them. So which parts of the world will have the most fly diversity? Well, uh, classically, it's the tropics because um, you've got a huge amount of variation, speciation. They didn't get the big uh, glaciation periods, so you still had this rapid uh, species evolution going on. But it's, it's not, I mean, that's great and it's lovely seeing those. But actually, some of the less diverse habitats as well offer some of the more interesting species and some of the weirder species because they've had to adapt so you know like the arctic so yes it's going to be species depopulate but it's got it's got some crazy adaptations going on and and the way that the plants and like the flowers and the species of insects have evolved alongside each other has created some marvels saying that though south africa and the, the cape of south africa because of the floristic diversity there You've got some stunners, some absolutely amazing flies there. What's the weirdest one you've seen or you know of? 
There's one that's got a mouth part, which is the insect is about two centimetres long and its mouth part is a further six centimetres long. So that's quite amazing. That's the equivalent of you having a six metre long tongue, which I think is quite cool. Something like that. It's worked out weird proportions. But then you've got all sorts of things. There's like loads of stalk-eyed flies. So they grow their eyes on the end of stalks. And this has happened, this has evolved independently 22 times. So they love it. But some of them also have antlers. They've got an, or they've got uh, protrusions out their cheeks. Some of them have flags on their bums. A lot of them have tickling apparatus, which is, <laughs> yeah, I know. Actually, a lot of their genitalia is quite extraordinary. There's, but there's loads of like um, ones that you would come across daily in your garden. There's a whole troop of hoverflies whose larvae I affectionately call the bum breathers. And they have these rat tails, which is basically an elongated siphon that's an abdominal siphon that they breathe out of, hence the bum breathers. And and these are telescopic, so they can go from like, you know, a one centimetre long maggot can suddenly become two or three centimetres as it expands its little breathing spiracle. And that enables it to dig down in whatever's disgusting that it wants to eat, but still breathe from the surface air. Like snorkeling. Exactly. (laughs) They are literally bog snorkeling, (laughs) which is great. Now, how smart are flies? They've evolved all these crazy things, but how intelligent are they? We are beginning to, we've mapped their neurological pathways now. So they've done a a map of the brain. There's 100,000 neurons, I believe. And they're beginning to look at how they process. And they, they they do learn. So we are seeing this. We're beginning to process. Like they did some horrible experiments, cutting limbs off to see. I know, I know, to see how they would act. So they, for example, they they always wash with their first pair of legs, and they cut their first pair of legs off. And uh, it took them a little while. Then they realised. So they had to clean with their second pairs of legs. So they're doing all sorts of things like that, um, recognition things like that. So they are just just terrible behaviour things. So they're, they're, they're shocking the larval stage and the adult stage will still remember to avoid these sorts of like things. And it's like, oh, the ethics of art. <laughs> but, yeah, so we're beginning to kind of finally be, look at and understand their intelligence. Now, why is it so hard to swat a fly, though? Not, Not that we should. No, no, no you're, you're only allowed to kill flies for science. That's my rule. Um, because they process so much quicker than we do. So each each of the large eyes is composed of a series of omatidia. So imagine these omatidia as uh, an individual photo unit. So they may have up to 5,000 plus of these photo units. Now, in all other insects, that photo unit is this fused tube of what originally consisted of eight photocells, so six black and white, two colour. But in flies, those have defused, as it were, and they've gone back to individual photo units, apart from the two colour, seven, eight are still fused. And so when it takes an image, it takes an image from six different parts. So it's able to get a greater acuity than most other insects uh, with the number of omatidia. So, you know, you've got 36,000 images being taken in one go. Its neurological pathway is really fast, okay? And it often bypasses the brain and just goes an impulse straight to the wings. So it's able to kind of move so much faster. 
So you appear like a slow motion. It's like being in the Matrix, you know, you're like, oh, you are Neo or the fly is Neo. It's just going, what is going on here? So if you do want to catch a fly, just go very slowly because then it won't process that you've got movement going on. Ah, and then catch it nicely and put it outside. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Now, we tend to think of flies as carrying diseases, but how many flies or what percentage of flies are actually dangerous for humans? Oh, very, very small. The actual percentage is, and um, they are vectors, that's absolutely right. And I'm not going to negate how important they are as vectors, but they themselves, uh, they're just being manipulated, this is what I would say. Um, so we are looking at um, a lot of the sanguivorous, the blood feeding species. So the mosquitoes, obviously, are number one. But within that family, there's 3,500 species of mosquitoes. Only about 150 of those are important vectors, of which 20 are like the big ones. So when you're talking like absolute numbers, there's very few species of flies that are important in, in the 165,000. So we have to be mindful not to say all flies. That's like saying, blaming all mammals based on our behavior, you know. So um, there is, there's definitely things that we need to consider. And I don't think we should eradicate mosquitoes because I think they're too important. But we definitely need to think about breaking transmission barriers and doing things like that. And what about things like um, house flies, because they'll sort of land on disgusting things and then stamp all over your food. Is that not actually a too big a problem? No, no. I mean, it's not really. I mean, I'm, I'm very, uh, so they will, they, they, they can do mechanical transfer, but um, we do worse. Uh, never look at money because they did some examination of what's on money and it is really quite disgusting. Or peanuts in a bar. Don't ever eat those, just saying. Um, so, yes, there's anything can be in a mechanical transfer. And because they're attracted in, of course, this can happen. So I would say cover things up. Just be logical. Flies don't understand home ownership and where and where they can't go. Okay? So it's not like they understand this. In fact, you've kind of built your house on their habitat. So this is why they will come in and do that. Without realizing it, humans are really filthy. We absolutely stink. And so they're like, well, of course I'm going to come in. You smell fantastic and I'm going to try and eat your food. So, yeah, cover up food, put things away, try and make things not as attractive to them. Houseflies, though, are really important pollinators. Um, Yeah, we are starting to think about how we can use them. For example, they're really good at pollinating bell peppers in greenhouses. Really? Yeah. (laughs) That's the whole thing about flies. Just You can't say that they just do one thing because it's like, hold on, they do multiple things. It's great. Now, we talked about how important flies are. So what are some of the threats that flies are experiencing? Things like climate change, pollution, is that affecting them? Yes, 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 and yes. Everything, everything. So you've got the original, you've got land use change. This is the biggest species last. You've got introduced species coming in that is taking over habitats. Um, you've climate change, neonicotinoids. Uh, all of these things are having a massive impact on flies. And they, uh, the problem we have is very little long-term data. Uh, oddly enough, people haven't collected flies or recorded flies in maybe the same way they have done with birds and other things like that. We're beginning to build it up now. I mean, the UK is lovely. We have this uh, UK 
organization called the Ditchers Forum. And there's about 400 of us fly specialists and, you know, all walks of life going out there, recording and figuring out. So we're providing long-term data sets to enable us to look what's going on. And yes, they have seen declines. They've seen declines in species that are in specialist habitats, feed on specialist things like that. Intensive agriculture has had a massive, massive impact. You know, they, they just haven't been able to live. Cocoa plantations, this is ironic because cocoa will die out because they're losing the habitat where these fly pollinators live by building monocultures. So our lack of knowledge about the, the what all the species are and what they do is, is causing us a problem now. And is there anything people can do in their gardens or if they've got even just a window box that can help the flies? First off, my advice is to do nothing. I love this. Just, I, I don't like the word messy because that implies that it's anything wrong. But a little bit wild, let something go, you know. Um, the We forget about the larval stage. And the larval stage, obviously, we've been talking about is so important. So if you can in your garden, put in a pond. And this is beneficial. There's some brilliant stuff going on. It's not just beneficial for all the insects. You get all the amphibians coming back because they're feeding on insects. You get the birds coming back because they're feeding on the insects. So you, you have this massive knock-on effect by looking after little insects. But if you've only got a windowsill, plants, potted plants, they, they need that. Ivy is the best thing ever. Ivy, and this is what I love, it's, it's a, you know, you just let it grow. Because it is a, an autumn, winter pollinating plant. So it is really, if you go out now and you just go and have a look, the ivy is covered with insects and it's great. So just, just relax. Try not to use as many bad products. Just uh, be, be a little bit less tidy about things and, and they will come. Now, insects and particularly fruit flies are really important in science experiments. They're used a lot by scientists. You know, they've even been up on the International Space Station. So what is it about fruit flies that makes them so very useful for science experiments? Well, it's a little bit of an accident <laughs> how the fruit fly got picked in the first place. So it, it did happen. It, it, was very, it was there. It was accessible. It was in the lab. You know, it, it was the classic thing. And they were using lots of hairs before. And hair's quite big. Yep. Not so easy to use in lab conditions. Take a long time to reproduce, whatever. You've got these little flies. They're feeding on bananas. They are reproducing like nobody's business and they're free, basically. So suddenly we were able to start our technology, our understanding of how to look at genes and to manipulate genes. To be fair, it took them quite a while with the flies as well. But, you know, we, we were like, OK, this is great. And so that's it. We can we learned how to manipulate them faster. Now it could have been any fly, and then there was talk it should have been like uh, black with dark wing fungus gnats rather than Drosophila melanogaster. And so it, it's not necessarily the fly itself. And this fly is slightly weird as well. I mean, it does a lot of things that we're like, hold on, that doesn't happen in other flies. So, but it is still it's 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 got so many. Um, inherited diseases that are the genes that are uh, the same as ours we can understand the behavior we can understand its physiology and we can you know extrapolate with ours as well it's such a useful little model it's brilliant i like the fact we get these flies drunk because it's not ethical to get humans drunk it's just like hmm, 
I could volunteer for that. How do you get them drunk? Do you just give them a bit of alcohol like you were with humans? Well, the Drosophila, they're, they're, they're not fruit flies, which is a, a thing we have to kind of like, eh. Their real common name is vinegar flies. So they're attracted to that, you know, when fruit has gone off. And this is why you get a lot of drunk flies, because they are <laughs> flying around. And um, there's some brilliant genes associated with um, making flies uh, like flies and alcohol, which we have as well. One's a cheap date gene, and and you've got all of these. So we, we're looking at our uh, uh, our own susceptibility to alcohol by looking at these genes. And uh, so yes, and they do. This might sound familiar. When the flies get drunk, the males start walking around, then they start falling on their backs, and they just like legs in the air, and then they become very amorous, which uh, uh, and their ability to choose their partners just completely disintegrates. So they're just, it's like a, yeah, it does sound awfully familiar when you put it like that. I mean, obviously, because I work here, I, I work on not just living flies, um, but we, we have this amazing historic collection. And the collection goes back 350 years. It's great. And we're, we're now, um, I really do think we're now, although we've got to hurry up and describe things, okay, we're, we're running out of time and we've been, as a, as a species, we are horrendous. And I'm quite selfish as a member of the species that I'd like it to survive. So I like this planet and I'd like, you know, my friends and family to survive. Um, and so one of the things we've got to do is rapidly describe, but we've got to rapidly understand how evolution is happening, how these different things are impacting on everything. So I have quite a few different projects going. And one of them is um, working with the Welcome Sanger Institute, and it's historic DNA recovery, which is a great thing. But And we, we've been able to do this with lots of things now. But my because I work with a collection, I don't want it destroyed. It's our biological heritage. And with a lot of these projects, it was, you, you know, you'd take a leg. And I know insects have got six, but it's like, come on, back off. So um, we, we've been washing them with various different buffers to extract their DNA. And we've been very successful. So we're getting whole genome DNA from material that's 100 years old without, without damaging the specimens at all. So this is great. So we can, we've been able to see when the gene for insecticide resistance first appeared in a museum collection specimens, which is, which is good. Can you imagine the sorts of things we can start looking at? We've also uh, looked at the blood mills in the mosquitoes, and we've been able to identify which plasmodium they've been transmitting. So again, there's all sorts of questions we can ask from our collections. We can see which plasmodium started coming into which species when. We can understand how they spread. We can understand all sorts of things associated with collection. And that's just those. Think about what we could start doing then if we looked at the pollen of the insect collection in their guts around their mouth parts. We can truly tell you which flies are pollinating what. So it's just like, I just need someone to give me, I don't know, 10 million. That's all I'm asking. And I would go and we would just sequence and we would go through the collection and get all this information. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was fly expert, Dr. Erica McAllister. The latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. 